Hello, this is Randy Starkey, pastor of Mariposa Baptist Church. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to another message from the Word of God. We hope that it will be a challenge and encouragement to you. If you are not a part of a local church, we would love to have you come and gather with us. We meet together every Sunday morning at 9.30 for Bible study and 10.30 for our worship service. We also meet again on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock for prayer and Bible study together. Again, we would love to have you come and join together with our body of believers to grow in your faith. We are located at 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina, zip code 28164. Again, that's 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina. You can also go to our website to find out more information at www.mariposabc.org. And now... A message from God's Word. Take your Bibles and turn at the moment to Genesis chapter 3. If I were to describe this morning how we might go about viewing life in general in the midst of the culture in which we presently live, especially as it as it relates to how we think that we should be progressing in life, I might provide some kind of scenario like uh, that might, you might find in a, maybe a marketing lecture. And if I were to do so this morning, I might want to do it in a way that would be memorable. So I might base it on five key components. And those key components, in order to be easily remembered, would come in the form of alliteration so that they would resonate with you. And those five things might sound something like this. Autonomy, ambition, achievement, authority, and affluence. In other words, autonomy. If you want to make it somewhere in this life, then you need to set the rules. You need to determine the playing field for yourself. But not only that, you need to be ambitious. You need to be competitive in this world that is competitive. You need to seek to get ahead. And then, of course, you need to keep in mind achievement. Not just any achievement, but if you're going to do this in this life and it be worth it, you need to pursue whatever is going to make you happy or pursue personal satisfaction in the direction that you're headed. Number four, authority. You need to make a name for yourself. You need to build your brand. You need to do it in such a way so that you become an authority on whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's a product, whether it's something you offer, you need to be the expert so that people will turn to you in order to get advice. And then finally, affluence, and that is, as most certainly, anything we do should be a plan for success. We want to build wealth in this life. Now, this is Again, my own way of presenting something like this. But if you were to go into just about any corner of our world and our culture, you would find some kind of speech in this way. It kind of follows the the things that you and I heard, many of us, as as I was growing up. And that was, you know, be all that you can be. Anybody remember the slogan? That comes from what? The army. Or if you... If you work hard enough, you can do anything that you want to, so long as you set your mind to it. This is the kind of encouragement we hear in the midst of the world in which 
we live. In fact, those five things, autonomy, ambitious, achievement, authority, and affluence, those five things I could, I could pitch as a biblical model because I drew them from the pages of Scripture. But you might find that those five things, rather than being a, a biblical model, is something we should pursue, in fact, are exactly the opposite of what the Bible seeks to help us to understand and to embrace as God's view of this life. Because He is our Creator. He's sovereign over it. Now, of course, as you know, this is the first week of the month, and this is the, the week that we give to our Baptist Catechism. And that question and answer, which we introduced earlier, is again, what it was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the state wherein they were created? And the answer, again, the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. We know the story well, but just in case, in recent months we have, uh, we have looked to this particular text. But I want to begin here again this morning in Genesis chapter 3. We'll read the first several verses of this account. The author records for us, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this morning... Again and afresh, who we are in you, but then, of course, who we are in light of sin's entrance into this world and its effects on every single one of us, in fact, all of creation. I pray, Lord, you would grant us wisdom as we consider your word, and not only to understand it, Lord, but to know how we then are to respond, not just in this moment, but in every moment. So, Father, grant us wisdom. Grant us discernment, illuminate our hearts and minds by the power of the Spirit as we consider your words this morning. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen. It is by somewhat chance, but not by chance, that the title of our message this morning is the Declaration of Independence. Today being the 4th of July, you might find somewhat of a patriotic message well, I don't know that you will call it exactly that, but it is most certainly a message about a declaration of independence. In fact, I would argue that we would not have need to celebrate every year, July 4th, our declaration of independence as a nation had it not been for the entrance of sin into this world. Now, that's not to denigrate 
the ideal of celebration of such an event, but to, to make us realize that it is only because of sin in this world that there was ever a need for anyone any, at any time, anywhere to declare themselves separate from or independent of any other people or nation. But our declaration, our celebration of this very fact is a reminder to us of the way in which sin has been and continues to and will continue to affect the world in which we live. As we look to this particular scripture, as, and we're going to look at others as well, we're going to find that uh, contrary to where I began with those five things, autonomy, ambition, achievement, authority, and affluence, as means to, to pursue in this life, I'm going to argue from Scripture that those, while taken from Scripture, are taken from Scripture because they are the response that human, humanity has had because of sin, sin's effects on us. And that begins right here in Genesis chapter 3 with the very first declaration of independence. Or stated another way, we find here a very self-determined sufficiency See, in the garden, and again, we're not going to, to spend a lot of time in this particular text, but uh, we find that uh, Adam and Eve were created in perfection and provided a perfect place. In fact, God, in so many ways, yes, He gave commands, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, but He promised to provide for their every need, for their joy, for their life, in every way that was necessary. God was going to do this for them. They, they had no responsibility as far as making sure everything was taken care of for them to live in joy and in peace and in perfect harmony with their creator and with his creation. God was going to guarantee that. In fact, it's, it's as if God said, guys, here it is. Now, you don't have to worry about anything. I've got it covered. But in the midst of this narrative that we find in Genesis 3, in a moment of time, Satan, through the craftiness of the appearance of this, this serpent in the garden, was able to create some doubt, raise some questions in the moment that then led to a, a momentary act that had eternal consequences, not only for Adam and Eve, but for every single one of their descendants. And so in that deception, the serpent sought to, to merely bring doubt to the Word of God, to make Adam and Eve think that maybe God wasn't quite enough. Maybe God hadn't given enough, and that somehow God was withholding from them. In essence, that's my interpretation in short of what's going on. There's something more that God's not telling you that you need to know. And so it tells us that the serpent tells them that you, it's not that you're not going to die. That's not really the issue here. But, but the issue for God is that if you don't listen to him, then your eyes will be opened. That was true. We find that. That happened. And you will be like God. So there's something that God's not given you. And this was the knowledge of good and evil. And I can't even begin to imagine, you know, in the garden for Adam and Eve because I mean, I don't, I don't know, did they, they didn't have a, a dictionary to, cons to consult with to find out what evil was. I mean, I, I don't know what would have been on their minds when, when the serpent was tempting them to know good and evil. 
But either way, in that moment, there was enough doubt there for, for Eve to respond because it says that she saw that the tree was good for food. Well, I don't doubt that the tree was acceptable for food, that the fruit of that tree was, was edible. I don't really know what might be implied in the idea that it was good for food. For obviously, it wasn't good for food because God said, you don't need it, don't eat it. But then it was a delight to the eye. So obviously, looking at this fruit was not, it didn't look gross, but rather desirable. And then, of course, it was desired to make one wise. When every time I read that, immediately my mind goes to Romans 1, where it says, professing to be wise, they what? They became fools. And if I had to then define the, the, the word fool, I think the ultimate definition that would have something to do with thinking that God doesn't know best. And so Eve ate of the fruit and says she gave to her husband also. And they, in that moment, signed the very first declaration of independence. They wanted to live independent from God. While the, the, the act of Adam and Eve was not necessarily, as we might see it out, worked out today in the lives of many, defiant with, with anger and frustration, it was a moment of question and doubt of the very one who would take care of everything. But they, in essence, the nature of taking of or eating of the forbidden fruit was not that it was a particular fruit, but rather that it was a statement from within the depths of their being to say that they wanted to determine their own rules. And it wasn't a question of whether there were rules or not. There were rules. That was very clear. The boundaries were clear. But they suddenly believed that for some reason, those boundaries determined by their creator were not the best boundaries. In fact, they would go it alone. They would now decide that they knew better how to provide for themselves. And so they would pursue in ignorance that reality. And that was a result or resulted in the fall. Adam and Eve sought autonomy. They sought to play by their own rules, and they got what they asked for. God gave them that measure of independence. But thankfully, God didn't leave it there. But nevertheless, the, the narrative works its way out through the rest of Genesis, and we're going to walk a little bit through a couple narratives here just to see how the effects of sin was then born out in the lives of real people. That God chose to inspire, to be recorded, so that we can get a glimpse into how sin began to affect this world and the people that God created that were supposed to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue it and serve Him and worship Him. Because what was happening in those first days is still happening to this very day. So, out of their self-determined sufficiency, God's not enough, therefore we will make ourselves enough we then see a story that reveals to us a self-determined righteousness. If you turn to the very next chapter, we get the story of Cain and Abel. Now, there's a lot of debate about around this, and that's not what we're going to focus on this morning. But the Bible tells us that, that Adam and Eve had a son, Cain, and then, of course, another son, Abel. And it describes Cain and Abel. We don't get a lot of information about these young men. 
But it says in verse 3, In the course of time came brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now again, there's a lot of debates and people have tried to figure out what exactly this is, what information is not given to us that must have aligned with it. Well, surely God must have told them what they were supposed to bring. And, and again, we can debate on it. But what is clear is that God accepted Abel's offering, but he did not accept Cain's. But notice the next part of that. It says that Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So the point is, God made it very clear that that wasn't the end of the game for Cain. That whatever led him to do what he did that was not regarded as, as good by God, that was not the end. God gave Cain an opportunity and said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But Cain rejected that. It it's, it's kind of looks like this. Now, you've probably done this at some point in your life, maybe, or if not, your kids. And that is that, you know, when you, we think about the ideal of buying gifts for bringing gifts to one another, especially our spouses. And sometimes we can do that in the oddest kind of ways, like, you know, when you buy your wife a vacuum cleaner or something like that. And then when you do that and you, you offer this gift up and your wife then looks at you like you've got three heads, what in the world were you thinking? And then you somehow get mad because they're not appreciative of what you did. Well, that may not be the best example, but the idea is sometimes we do for others certain things. We determine in our minds that we're going to do or give. And then if the response is not what we want, then we somehow, we take it upon ourselves to blame Something outside of ourselves, rather than to say, hey, honey, what would you like? Let me get that for you, not what I want you to have. This is the picture of what happened here. Cain, for whatever reason, brought what he determined would make him right with God, keep him in a right relationship, but it didn't work. God did not have regard for Cain and his offering, but God didn't say, you're done. He said, but if you do well... Will it not, will you not be accepted? But rather than Cain going back and saying, how do I play according to God's rules? How do I allow God to determine what needs to be done in order for me to be right? I want to determine my own measure of righteousness. And if it doesn't please him, then I'll just get rid of the competition. I mean, surely if there's no able, then God will only have to accept me. So Cain's ambition, rather than to determine what would truly make him right with God, was to persist in his self-determined righteousness. And he was ambitious, and he did get rid of his brother, but to no avail. As God told him, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. His desire is for you, to get you, to make you pay. But you must rule over it. And God, at the very least, was open to Cain being right with him. But Cain pursued self-determined righteousness. So, out of self-determined sufficiency, then we see the flow 
or the, the outworkings of that is a self-determined righteousness on my terms, in my way, and not God's. But then the story doesn't stop there after the Cain and Abel episode. We, we get uh, all the, the, the outworkings of chapter 5 with all that list of names which can kind of bore us at times and we can sometimes miss the significance in it. But then we arrive at another popular story in Genesis 6. Not only do we see in this, these narratives a self-determined sufficiency and a self-determined righteousness, but a self-determined satisfaction. Do whatever makes you happy. Pursue personal satisfaction in your own goals and achievements. In chapter 6, the beginning of the flood narrative, it begins... Like this, when man, man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Just stop right there for a second. Do you notice a connection? What did God command His creation? He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land, fill the earth. Well, chapter 6 starts on a good note. When man began to multiply on the face of the land or earth, it's the same word, and daughters were born to them, which is obviously part of that multiplication. So here we're on a good note. But then the next verse says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now you might read right over that quickly and get into all the debatable things about this passage. But notice that statement becomes the basis of the very next statement. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide, or depending on your translation, shall not strive with man forever, for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. It was on the basis of verse 2 that we are introduced to God's conclusion. Now, there's a lot more to that. The Bible goes on in verse 5 and says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's the that's an indicting verse. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, and you can say, well, that makes sense now that God destroyed or sought to destroy creation if this was the way it was going to be. But, but again, back up because the narrative begins on this note that as man did what God created them to do, but then there was a caveat there that then led to the conclusion of God. And that conclusion, as Simple as it might sound was that these sons of gods saw the daughters of men and they took as their wives any they chose. And I think there's a point here, and we'll see it worked out throughout the narrative, the emphasis being on whom they chose. Now, we can debate the sons of God and the daughters of men. There's a lot of different debates. I'll give you quickly my perspective because I think it's tied to the narrative. Because if you go back to the beginning of chapter 5 we find the introduction of Adam again in the generations of Adam. And it says that he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Now, the language there is meant to make us reflect upon God's creation of Adam. Okay, and then the, the Bible continues to show how each one then had a son. The implication here is that it began with the first creation, <clears throat> Adam, in other terminology, the very first son of God who then multiplied 
in his own likeness and image, and had Seth, so forth, so on. So I believe that the the definition or the understanding of who are the sons of God comes from chapter 5. Some people believe we're talking about angelic beings, and again, could be debated another time, but I believe that the text is, is guiding us to this conclusion. These are the sons of God. Well, then, who are the daughters of men? Well, if we go back to chapter 4, an outworking of the lineage of Cain, I think what we have here is a godly line and an ungodly line, the point being the basis for the very reason that God set up for His nation Israel later a rule, and that rule was that you are not to take for yourself wives from the foreigners, not because they were not Jews or of a certain ethnicity, but because they were unbelieving. And it was the basis of that argument, because here we find that the sons of God, the godly line, then pursued what they wanted as opposed to what God had prescribed. They took as their wives any they chose. They determined how they were going to be satisfied. They determined what was going to make them happy. And that basis alone then leads to the conclusion of God deciding that He would not strive or abide in or with man forever. But in fact, there would be recompense. Self-determined sufficiency, self-determined righteousness, self-determined satisfaction. Autonomy, ambition, achievement then leads us to yet another story. We read the flood narrative of which many of us are familiar with at least the broader portion of that text, but the moment we find Noah get off the boat, the very first thing he does was repeat the sin of the garden. He plants a vineyard and he gets drunk and bad things happen. Well, the Bible continues to give us the sons of Noah. So at least humanity is still multiplying and filling their, well, they're not, they're filling the immediate land at this point. And we get to chapter 11 and we find yet another self-determination and that is a self-determined significance. The story in chapter 11 is of the peoples of the earth. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. They were unified in a sense. And as people migrated East, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and, and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, Listen to some of the the phrases that are used here. Let's start with the last one. Lest we be dispersed over the earth. Now, Genesis 6, we started out okay, at least in the first verse, and we went very wrong after that. They were multiplying and over the face of the earth, or that land immediately, which would then, intention would broaden out. But now we find that God's people, the creation... We're seeking to, to not do that very thing, but rather remain unified and to make themselves significant. What I think is happening in this story is that they're saying, hey, we're going to make a name for ourselves so that everybody will look to us so there will be no need to go anywhere else. We will be the authority. We'll be the ones to come to. People will trust in us. We'll have great significance. So they sought to build their brand, to, to make a name for themselves so that people would not be spread out and feel the earth. 
The irony is the very act in which they did in order to keep this from happening was the very catalyst for God accomplishing His commands to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But this is, again, an outworking of sin's effects that begins in an independent self-sufficiency that reveals itself in self-determined righteousness and self-determined satisfaction, and that is now self-determined significance. Why are you important? What makes you unique? What makes you better than other people? How are you going to make something of yourself? This is the lines that we grow up on. But then finally, the final narrative, not the end of the story, but you know the story from there. We get to the end of this, more descendants in chapter 11, and then we arrive at Genesis 12 with the calling of Abram. Abram, who then later became Abraham, the father of many nations. And from that story, we find just mundane narratives, things that were happening in chapter 13, what we find is that Abraham has with him his nephew Lot. And as would be the case amongst sinful people who are self-sufficient and, and self-righteous and self-significant and, and seeking self-satisfaction, you're going to have strife. And that's exactly what happened. But then in verse 8 in chapter 13, the Bible tells us that Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go right. If you take the right, then I will go left. And verse 10. And Lot, you need to take note of the words. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of Eden, garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Now, you might not read that quickly and find the significance in this, but there's, there's purpose in this text. There's purpose in the, the mentioning of the garden of the Lord because we are meant to read this through the lens of the garden, of the very sin that took place in the garden where there was self-sufficient choice for oneself. We're supposed to read it through the lens of everything that we've read so far as we've seen those who pursued their lives in their way, choosing for themselves and seeking to make themselves significant. And in this real-life event, we see the working out of it. As Abram graciously says to Lot, you choose. And Lot looked around, and he chose. He pursued affluence. Which direction is going to make my life better? Which direction is going to be better for me? With no regard for anyone else, and the Bible says that he, as Abraham allowed him to do, chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and then he journeyed east. Just a side note, when you're reading these narratives of Genesis and further, when east is mentioned, it's never good. It's always a bad thing. It's a reminder that bad's going to happen. That started in the garden when they were cast out to the east. And everything else going east. That's maybe why we, we have that saying. It's already in your mind, isn't it, Mary? What is the saying? Go west, young man. Go west. I don't know if that's where that comes from or not. But nevertheless, when you're reading these narratives, take note of the eastward direction of God's people and then what becomes of it. 
all the way through up to the exile when God exiled them to the east. But nevertheless, this was a self-determined success. This was about choosing for myself that which was going to most benefit me. Now, to go back where I began, in the world in which you and I live and in, in the culture in which we, uh, we dwell in, the ideas of being independent or autonomous, of being ambitious, of pursuing achievement, of, of being an authority in, on the subject matter at hand, and to pursue affluence, none of that is ever frowned upon. And, and of course, I'm supposed to caveat that as always is none of that's bad in itself, but the problem with that is, is that when you begin to build the, the scenario that's given to us through the outworking of sins, entrance into this world of Scripture, there should be great pause as we become inundated with these messages all our lives, that these are the things that we build our lives around. Independence from the time of the, the ignorant, unexperienced teenager who wants independence from mom and dad to be what? Self-sufficient to the ambition of making something of ourselves and, and choosing for ourselves and our lives what's going to make us happy and in pursuing areas where we are experts. Nothing wrong with that, but when you put it all together, it most certainly screams. So, of course, with the outworking of that, because we all want for our kids, what, to be able to make enough money to take care of themselves. And we wouldn't mind if they were affluent so that they could take care of us in their old age, in the way that we believe that's supposed to look. These are the things that drive us deeply more deeply into the very effects of the fall. Self-determined sufficiency, self-determined righteousness, self-determined satisfaction, self-determined significance, and self-determined success. The key word being in all of them, self-determined. That leads us to yet another story much further down the road, one of which we've already read. And this is a story after much has happened with the life of God's people and outworking of sin's effects in this world, when we find ourselves at the end of Joshua, chapter 24, with God's people now standing on the banks of the river of Jordan, looking across at a land that had been told to them God had provided and prepared for them, in which He would lavish upon them His grace and provide for them in abundance. Remember the, the picture of the grapes and the milk and the honey? It's a, it, it's a reflection, imperfect though it is at this point, it's a reflection back to the story of Eden when God had provided and promised to continue to provide for everything. God's people were now standing on the brink of that in their perspective. They were standing on the brink of God's provision once again for them in this, across this river, but they were doing so now underneath a great weight of sin's effects in their lives and in all of creation they had encountered so many people and so many gods. There was doubt. There was question. We've seen that through all the narratives of the wanderings. And Joshua stands, and he reminds them of that wandering, as we've already read. read. And he says that, and if it is evil in your eyes, in essence, what he meant there, if, if, if this doesn't sound good to you, this is what he meant. He's, he means, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, if you don't think this is the right thing, if you don't think this is the best thing, then don't wander back and forth between gods. Choose this day whom you will serve. 
whether the gods of your fathers that were served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, but decide, make a choice for God or your so-called gods. And then Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, if you read the rest of chapter 24 in Joshua, it's an interesting conclusion. Because the people, as you would in any good movie, you would find them cheering and celebrating, we will serve the Lord. And if it ended there, then it might be a great conclusion to a great epic story. But it doesn't end there. Joshua continues to say, you can't. You'll mess this up. And he says, so right now, you're saying you will, but let this be a sign because God's going to hold you accountable to what you've declared when you fail. And the point is this, that on our own, we will fail miserably, just as God's people. I'm sure with good intention and excitement saying, we will serve the Lord Keep reading past Joshua 24, we find real quick that that didn't stick very long. In less than a generation, that had all changed. But as you know, the story of the Old, of the Old Testament reminding us of these, this reality of our self-sufficient pursuit of life in all things and the failure that it will bring no matter how momentary our joys might seem to be. I want to conclude us in... Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is, well, one of my beloved psalms. Of course, to be profound, Psalm 2 comes after Psalm 1. Probably the most profound thing I will say this morning. Psalm 1 sets up, and you've heard me preach this before, sets up, uh, sets the bar about a, one, a person, a man, a blessed man who would Live rightly in everything and serve in, in God. Meditate on God's laws day and night and be like a tree planted among streams and yields fruit in, in its season. And in all he does, he prospers. And it concludes with, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish, which then elicits the question of Psalm 2. Well, if this is the way it is, if there is such a thing, if there is the righteous who would, who would prosper and the wicked who would perish, then why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So the picture here is that life is not as we would want it to be, as, as, as it seems like we thought it was supposed to be. Things are going crazy everywhere. Even, even though God is sovereign in this world, even though there are believers in this world, the nations rage. That's the peoples of the world. The, they plot in vain. And the rulers of the nations, they are setting themselves or positioning themselves against God. This seems to be the outworking of the life that we've lived. What's the point? What you said about the righteous and the wicked, it just doesn't seem to be true. And notice in verse 3 in Psalm 2, we get an ultimate outworking of everything that we've just discussed in self-determination. And now the peoples and the kings and the princes, this is the expression of their hearts. They take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
That's just another way of saying we don't want to live according to God's rules. We want to make them. We want to determine the playing field. But no matter what extent to which this world, you or any ruler or any other person goes, to cast about apart from you God's bonds or fetters as though the world might feel like they would be or cast away the cords from us, these things that, that box us in and keep us from we're enjoying stuff. We're going to get rid of this stuff. No matter how much we attempt to, we will find ourselves in constant misery because there is no other way to live in God's world except for by God's rules. And it's a reminder to us that real freedom is not the absence of rules. There are rules to this game we call life. God is the one who set those rules. They're clearly laid out for us throughout the pages of Scripture. Yes, in the midst of those rules, we find ourselves like these people in Psalm 2 who are saying, let us cast it off. That's not fair. We don't like it. God is, is taking away our opportunities to, to thrive, to make a name for ourselves, to be make something of our lives. It's just another form of the serpent's deception. Did God really say? Because God's promise to His people is provision. Provision for what? Our ability to live in accordance to His glory and our own good, which will be the result. So the psalmist, after revealing this Son of God in Psalm 2, he concludes Psalm 2 this way, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. And be assured that if you do not kiss the son, you will perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But notice the last verse. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our independent pursuit in this life is a result of our indwelling sin. We are sinners because of sin's effects on all creation, including every little baby formed in the womb to the oldest person alive today. Sin has crept in to every corner of God's creation. And as a result, we will struggle with these very same things as the people that we read about in the very beginning to pursue self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-satisfaction, self-significance, self-success. This will be our constant struggle. But we as God's people, and only as God's people, in Christ, taking refuge in Him, need to heed the words of Joshua. And it doesn't mean that we will do so without fail. But if there's one thing that you and I are called to determine because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and because of the freedom that it brings to us, because only in Christ is one truly free, then we must determine whom we will indeed serve. And while our, our, our conflict may not be the gods of the Amorites or the gods in the land we dwell, it is most certainly little g gods in our life.
Will you serve the one true God in accordance to His ways, His rules in His world? Or will you seek to determine how you're going to do all these things your own way with self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-significance, self-success? Will you remain independent, declaring your independence from God, or will you declare instead your declaration of dependence on Jesus Christ for all things in every area of life because there is no corner of this universe that does not belong to the Lord. I would quote that quote, but I can't remember who it's from or how it goes, but you probably heard it. My prayer is that we will choose this day who we will serve. And that our declaration would be, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, I pray on this day, we celebrate the declaration of the independence of the country in which we live, and we celebrate that as a providence that you've granted to us in, in real time so that we could gather in a place like this freely. I pray that it would remind us of something much greater, much more significant. And that is rather than celebrating merely declaration of independence of a particular people in time, Lord, that we would forever celebrate our declaration of dependence upon the one true God in whom is found and only found true significance, true success, true righteousness, and true satisfaction. May we be found faithful, and may we trust in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.